The Bible reading today continues in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 16 to 28. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all your brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome if you're new or visiting with us this morning. Uh, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper later. and. Um, if your trust is in the Lord Jesus, uh, then uh, we invite you to come and share it with us. Uh, this morning we finish a series, it's the start of Advent for those who are aware of the church calendar, uh, but this morning we finish a series that we've been working through over this term in this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians and we come to this last section of the letter. Let me pray for us before we uh, embark on, uh, on reflection. Heavenly Father, we do we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you'd speak to our hearts and minds this morning and, uh, and make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, one of the things I found most uh, depressing as a young child was the realisation that all the shiny presents wrapped up in shop windows weren't real. You know, these immaculately wrapped boxes with a beautiful bow on them were actually just that boxes like empty they didn't have anything in them i remember this experience uh, quite vividly actually coming to the realization that all of those were they were literally just cardboard boxes uh, and actually the most valuable presents often were badly wrapped <laughs> ugly things that found their way to the bottom of your uh, christmas tree i say this because as i've reflected uh, on on being a, a minister a pastor one of the, th the things that's most, I guess, discouraging and challenging as a pastor is encountering people who have all of the, the wrapping, so to speak, of the Christian life. But over the course of time, you come to realise that that's just all that it is, just wrapping. And that unfortunately, there isn't something deeper and more authentic about their Christian expression. It leads you to the question of what is it to truly be a Christian? What is a true Christian? And as we come to the last section, this last little part of the final chapter of this letter, the Apostle Paul articulates what he believes is the will of God for each person. In other words, what are the core things that God wants to see take place in the life? What are the hallmarks, what are the characteristics of a true Christian? What are the things that God is seeking to grow and develop 
in the life of those who follow him. So you'll see it here in verses 16, 17 and 18. He says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. This is the very thing that God is seeking to grow in you. This is the thing that he wants to see. This is the mark of authenticity and truth and sincerity in the Christian life. And here it is in three commands. Quite challengingly, the first one, really, rejoice always. One of the hallmarks of true Christian life is joy. It's joy. That's what, that's what marks out a true Christian, actually. It's someone who's joyful always. Uh, it, you see this at the start, actually. In fact, at the start of this letter, when Paul started and, in, and, and addressed them, he said this, he described the Thessalonians and their authentic faith. You welcome the message in the, spite, in the, in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. What actually, why Paul is so confident about the Thessalonians being real real followers of Jesus, authentic followers of Christ, is that they are people who have joy. They have joy. Now, joy is an interesting thing. Uh, maybe, I don't know what you think of. Maybe it's just kind of like a bubbly personality or demeanor. This author helpfully um, gets to the core of what the Bible is saying. He says, joy is not an accessory to the Christian life, a perk for shiny saints who can turn their frowns upside down. Rather, joy is tenacious. It fights. It grips the promises of God and won't let go. And joy is not a mere good mood. It is the ballast in our boats, an anchor in our storms, an immovable rock to stand on when the waves of life threaten to flatten us. Joy. The, the, the true and authentic Christian life is marked with this deep joy. And in case, in case you think, oh, Paul's setting a standard which no one meets, but no, this is actually the mark of the early church. As I said, it's the mark of the Thessalonians. Historians remark this was what was so unique about the early church. These people were joyous in spite of many of their circumstances. You look at the story of Jesus' birth and the, the hallmark, actually, of Jesus' encounter, of people encountering this great news is joy. You'll see it over the coming weeks as you, as you read portions of Scripture and you read the story. Just note how often joy is the hallmark of those people who hear about or encounter the baby. Joy. Because joy is at the heart. But what we see, actually, is that joy is part of a, a larger picture. Uh, so Paul will say, rejoice always, pray continually. He's describing a dependence, I think, more than just the act of praying. I don't think he was constantly praying every moment of every day. He couldn't have been because he was also talking. But it's, it's articulating a, a consistent and constant dependence on God. And he says, give thanks in all circumstances. If you were to really kind of get your head around these three commands, they are commands about the, the internal state. These are, these are internal things more than they're external. That constant dependence, that, that, that ongoing joy, that continual thankfulness. Paul is describing an internal reality. See, the true Christian life is first and foremost internal before it's anything else. 
The true Christian life is a renovation, a revolution of your heart. And Paul's just picking up something that Jesus taught himself. In Mark 7, Jesus has a conflict with the Pharisees. It's not unusual. And in fact, his conflict with the Pharisees is not unusual. The, the contents of the conflict is not unusual either. So look what he says. I've just, I've just pulled out one verse from that little encounter. You can go and have a read of it later. But he says to the disciples and to the Pharisees, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus, in fact, his great conflict with the Pharisees, for them, their whole life is external. Right? It's, it's all about these external practices. But Jesus says, you know, the, the reven- renovation, the, uh, the hallmark of authentic and true discipleship starts internally, actually. Internally. So the Christian life is not, not primarily understood through external, not through the wrapping, but what's inside it. And, and Paul's, Paul's challenge is, is very significant because this internal reality of thankfulness, of reliance, of joy is a reality that is, in a sense, um, not determined by your circumstances. Because he says it's in all circumstances. This is challenging because often it is our very circumstances which seem to impact our ability to be joyful or thankful or dependent on God. If it's suffering, if it's death, they impact our ability to, to find joy, don't they, and to be thankful. Interestingly, sometimes these circumstances are positive. You're you're prosperous. You're wealthy. Gives you. It it finds it. You find it hard to be thankful and to be reliant on God. It's interesting how often actually the circumstances are the things which we think impact our hearts. But Paul says what God is seeking to bring about in a Christian is an internal disposition which is unmarked, unscarred by the external realities. This is most challenging, actually, when it comes to our sense of guilt and failure. It might be our sin, it might be a broken relationship, a past mistake, and these things go, it seems, actually, to set guilt deep in our hearts. But Paul says a true Christian is someone whose heart remains joyful, dependent and thankful. It has an internal coherence to it, unmarked by the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now you might say to yourself, oh well actually, that's maybe Paul's just, it's a bar but it's, it's, it's hard, to, hard to see anyone meeting that. I mean Paul meets that, his story in the New Testament, attested not just by his own writings but by of course the the, the, the eyewitnesses of the early church and his missionary journeys is of a man who, despite his circumstances, despite his own personal failings, is marked with this deep joy. But it's not just the Apostle Paul. We see this story through. You might know people yourself who have this, this internal, deep coherence of joy and thankfulness and gratitude and reliance, this, this, this heart that seems to be radically reshaped. You might know people like that. There are people through the history of God's church who have been like that. You might know this gentleman. His name's Horatio Spafford. We sing his song sometimes, It Is Well With My Soul. The story, if you don't know it, is of a man who 
extremely wealthy, lost most of his money in the Great Fire of Chicago. And then only two years later, he was connected to an evangelist, D.L. Moody. He was working in England at the time, and Spafford sends his family, his four daughters and his wife, across the Atlantic Ocean to visit Moody, only for the boat to sink and for him to lose his four daughters on this trip. As Spafford travels the Atlantic Ocean to go and meet his wife who had survived, he pens this song, It Is Well With My Soul, where the sorrow, the scene of sorrow, doesn't impact his deep joy. It happens. And this is what, this is what it is, actually, to be someone who has a, a real and true Christian faith, is to see this heart cultivated which has a lasting and deep contentment and assurance and comfort resulting in joy and dependence and thankfulness to be renovated. So the question is, how, how does this come about? How, how do you get that kind of faith? How does that come about in you? It's, it's interesting what Paul does and doesn't say in this, this section. He's just commanded them to do all this. But then, interestingly, that's not what he does himself. See, the reason, the reason is he, he starts with prayer. You notice that, verse 23? He prays. And that's for two reasons. First of all, because it's not actually up to you. You can't cultivate this naturally. You can't just say to yourself today, I'm going to go out and be a joyful person thankful, dependent. You just can't do that as a regular thing. I mean, you might do it for the next half an hour, but something will come up. It'll be a child or a spouse or traffic. It'll be something as ordinary as that which will sneak under your guard and undermine you. Why is that? Well, it's actually because of the dynamic of the Christian life. This is Jesus again from that same little portion of teaching. He says this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. It's a big list. Some of them really socially quite bad and some of them not that bad at all. But all of those things, he says, all of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And what Jesus is saying here is the dynamic, you see, of the Christian life is in-out. Starting on the inside and going out. He says change, good or bad, starts from within your heart and then goes outward. Now here's the thing. North Shore Christianity operates the other way. It operates outside in. It thinks... If I surround myself with all the right circumstances, I can drill down joy into my heart. It thinks if I do certain things, if I look a certain way, I can bring about this change in me. It's not really that different from the way anyone else thinks because that's, that's how we're conditioned to think. If I put a whole heap of things in place, I'll fix my heart. But you see that that is, that is so contrary to the dynamic of the Christian life. Some of us are not so concerned with our heart at all, actually. We just think, if I just put a smile on my face, 
If any time someone asks me how are things are going, I say, great, that will be sufficient. But of course, that, you're, in, you're entitled to do that. Of course you're entitled to do that. You're entitled to live that way. But it's not true Christianity. It's not what Paul's talking about. It's not what Jesus is talking about. It's in fact going contrary to the, the, the dynamic of the Christian life that Jesus is articulating here, which is you need the inside to be changed outward. And here's the really challenging bit. Even if you agree with what Jesus is saying, even if we agree right, that Jesus is right actually to really have authentic transformation take place, we need to fix our heart. That is not that easy to do. Because really, it's very hard to fix your desires and your motivations and your loves. It's really very challenging. Most of the time, because the only things you have to utilise are external things. And if we've said that the, the tide is coming in and the movement is from the inside out, it doesn't really matter in some ways what you put on. It can't change your heart, right? There's a great scene in the 90s uh, series Seinfeld. Showing my, my vintage here, perhaps. It won't work in the evening. I know this, this illustration's going to fall flat. But here I suspect I'll have self-success. This guy's Frank Costanza. He's the father of George Costanza. Now, Frank is a very angry man. He's a very highly strung older gentleman. Uh, and he goes and sees his doctor. And the doctor says, you have very high blood pressure, Frank. So what I want you to do, whenever you're feeling stressed, I just want you to say these words, serenity now. Okay. So Frank, the whole episode, it's genius. The whole episode, he spends his time, anytime he encounters something slightly stressful, serenity now! Now he screams it. That's part of the humour of, of the episode. Anytime his wife says something, serenity now! <laughs> of course... It does nothing, but raise his anxiety. When, when you think of your Christian life, when you think that by placing things in your life, you can somehow alter your heart, it's like screaming serenity now at the reality of things. You think by just being a better parent, by just being a more regular attender at church, by giving more, by just simply smiling all the time, by painting life as perfect, you will somehow cultivate a heart of godliness? Won't happen. You're screaming serenity now at an immovable object. Because Jesus says change comes from within outwards. And all you're trying to do is just do what the Pharisees did, which is clean the outside of the cup. You must go deeper. So the answer, you see, for change can't be with you. We all want this heart. I think everyone has a deep longing to be a person who's filled with joy, who's, re who's resilient, actually, to the circumstance. But the, the change can't come from you. It really can't. And this, is, this has got to be the singly most unique thing about the Christian message, actually. You can't change your heart. But see, that's not what Paul does. He wants, this for the, he wants this for the Thessalonians. He believes it's something that is true. That's why he, that's why he exhorts them to it at, at the end of this letter. But what does he do? 
He, t- he prays for them. Verse 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays. He prayed at the start of this letter, and he prays now. He prays. And there's a couple of things we can learn. First of all, he prays because it is really only God who can change your heart. It really is. It's only God. Maybe you've been in this building for the last year or the last decade or for the whole of your life and you've looked around and you've thought, I want what they have. But you've spent that whole time thinking you need to do something. My friends, only God can change your heart. That's why Paul prays. You want to be joyous? You want to be thankful? You want to have that deep reliance? Only God can change your heart. And we see what Paul, Paul is very deliberate about the, the way he describes God. He describes him as the God of peace. Peace in the Bible is, is much more than Israel and Palestine laying down their arms. Peace in the Bible is wholeness. It's in the Old Testament a word called shalom. It's, it's a sense of the world with all its brokenness being put together. It's a puzzle with all the pieces reconnected. And not just relational peace and wholeness, not just ecological peace and wholeness, but spiritual peace and wholeness. Where in the picture of the Old Testament, God is with his people and his people are with God. And this is what God is about, about this wholeness. That's why Paul is praying to him. Because he's really the only one who can put all the pieces back together again. And you see what else he prays? He prays, he says, may he sanctify you through and through. You see, the reason he prays to God, and the reason God is the only one who can change your heart, is God is the only one who can get to your heart. He's the only one who can get to your heart. And you see the movement of this prayer, right? May your whole spirit, soul, and body. You see the movement that he's he's got the same movement that Jesus is talking about. He starts from the very core of who you are. Because only God can do that. Only God can get to the core of you. You can't do it, but God can. God can do it. Of course the question is, why would he? Why would he? You know, if God could, if, if the world and, and all of the universe could be rolled up into a ball, God would sling it over his shoulder. Such is the nature of God. So why? Why would he unravel all that? Find a, a small little planet in the middle of the universe, come to a little city, a little town, a little suburb, and to this building, and to you where you're sitting. Why would he come and work in your heart of all the things? Why would he, why would he think that joy and gratitude and dependence, like a, a renovated inner constitution in your little heart, is worth investing in? That's the question that's got to be before us, right? Because I, I don't think it will be that unusual to tell people of other cultures 
and religions even, that God is capable of changing your inner disposition. What is remarkable is to claim that he wants to. Why would he do that? In some ways, it's as simple as Paul's last verse in this letter. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. For most of us, as we read this, it's it's a fairly unremarkable verse. Except it is a very remarkable verse. Because what Paul's saying here is that God, the great God of the universe, right, for whom the whole universe is in his hand, that God, whom you would expect is powerful and awesome and beyond comprehension, that God is gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. And, and we know that not because we just got a book with a whole bunch of principles laid out about God, but because we find it in the Lord Jesus. When Christ comes to earth, we don't meet another messenger, we meet God himself. And this God comes as a little baby into Palestine, born in a manger. It's about as unexpected as you could expect God to behave. It's unexpected unless God is, of course, gracious. Unless his very inclination is to the poor and to the lowly, to the weak and to the humble. Unless his whole heart is about lifting up those who are cast down. But that's exactly who God is. He's gracious to you. And his grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ is all you need. It's all you need. It's all the assurance your heart needs to know that God is willing, ready and able to transform you. You know what? When It's interesting because just before this verse... Paul charges the Thessalonians to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Verse 27. He does it because this, this letter is a letter immersed in a gospel of grace, actually. It's a letter which constantly references Christ and his death for us, his, his resurrection, his return. It references the gospel. See, Paul knows What we just need to keep hearing is this truth. God is gracious to us in Christ. This is all our heart needs. And the gospel becomes a shield for our heart against the circumstances of this life. Rather than changing them, it meets all of them. The gospel which says Jesus Christ came, lived and died for each of us is the gospel which says that little voice of guilt in your heart, in your, in your, in your ear, reminding you of your, your failures past, your current failures, your future ones, have been dealt with by Jesus. Is the gospel that just extinguishes those arrows. It meets them and it says they have nothing to hold against you anymore. And the gospel, which is the story of Christ risen, Ascended and coming again is a statement that all those other things in our life, 
whether it be suffering or death or injustice or hardship or war or famine, everything that's broken will be put back together. Because look at Jesus. He was broken and now he's risen for us. And say, all your heart needs, all my heart needs is the gospel. It's all we need. The assurance that God is gracious. And I want to invite you to find your rest in Christ. We spent the whole year, if you look back at our sermons, God willing, most of them, have reminded us of the grace of God because that's the key. You can't change yourself, but my friends, God is gracious and he wants to change you. And the Lord Jesus Christ is your assurance of this truth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you show us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Though he was high and mighty, yet for our sake he became low and humble. And as we take our step into the Advent season to remember the birth of the Lord Jesus, his willingness to descend to our point and to the very point of death itself, might you guard our hearts with the grace of the gospel and so cultivate in us the true, the true shape of the Christian faith, this joy, this thankfulness, this dependence on you, which affirms your sufficiency in everything, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.